0: Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you guys this morning as we turn in our Bibles to First Timothy chapter 5. It's a joy to uh, worship together, to be part of the family that sings praises. See uh, a light song, gift of Jesus. Heaven has no greater thing to give to us. What else? lovely thought as we begin to enter into the holiday season and for thanksgiving and a joy that is this next week any a lot of our students have already gone and are traveling now or are already home how about you are you traveling if you you're leaving for thanksgiving heading somewhere just lift up your hand real quick we can keep you in prayer all right a few of us on the road a lot of us staying home so we'll be praying for you as you um, enjoy thanksgiving around the table and give the lord thanks for that let's turn and if you would and your copy of god's word first chapter five. We're back in our study. If you've not been with us, it is a continuing study through First and Second Timothy and Titus. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor serving in Ephesus. Timothy, it is written particularly to guide the church. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 really is the outline for everything that happens. It is, uh, he writes these things that you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the pillar and the support of the truth. That's the church. So it just means we're still in the church age. Everything that he writes here for the church, still relevant. And so we move into this section, this, uh, we just started this last week. It's a joy to get into it, but realizing it's just as relevant as it was the day it was penned. So let's look and pick up in verse three, if you would. And we'll read all the way down through Verse 16. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow, verse 4, has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Verse 6, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives prescribe verse 7 prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach verse 8 but if anyone does not provide for his own especially for those of his household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever verse 9 a widow then is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old having been the wife of one man verse 10 having a reputation for good works If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desire in regard to Christ. They'll want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. And not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Verse 14, therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that that may assist those who are widows. Indeed, let's stop right there. Arkant Hughes's book, Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome, relayed a story uh, of a meeting that took place a number of years ago between Mr. Charles Schwab, then president of Bethlehem Steel, and Ivy Lee, a management consultant. Lee was an aggressive, self-confident man who by his perseverance had secured the interview with Mr. Schwab, who was no less self-assured, being likely one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. And during The conversation, Mr. Lee asserted that if the management of Bethlehem Steel would follow his advice, the company's operations would be improved and their profits increased. Schwab responded, if you can show us a way to get more things done, I'll be glad to listen. And if it works, I'll pay you whatever you ask within reason. So Lee handed Schwab a blank piece of paper and said, write down the most important things you have to do tomorrow. Mr. Schwab did so. Now, Lee continued, number them in order of importance. Schwab did that. Tomorrow, he said, start on number one and stay with it until you have completed it. Then go on to number two and number three and number four. And don't worry if you haven't completed everything by the end of the day. At least you will have completed the most important projects. Do this every day, he said, and after you've been convinced of the value of this system, have your men try it. Try it as long as you like and then send me your check for whatever you think the advice is worth. Two men shook hands and Lee left the president's office. A few weeks ago, Charles Schwab sent Ivy Lee a check for $25,000, an amazing amount in the 1930s. And he said in a note, it was the most profitable lesson he had learned in all of his long business career. Not surprising to us, is it? Seems simple enough, instruction. It's hard to figure out what's most important probably. As we said a number of weeks ago, figuring out what goes first is some of the hardest things, but Hughes wrote this book after thinking he was a failure in ministry and he had been ready to quit. He turned back to the Word of God in his his despondency and was really liberated from what he called the success syndrome, where everything was about appearance and entertainment and numbers. The Word of God, he said, turned him away from secular thinking about success and back to what God indicated were the most important things. That's something we've understood, isn't it? It's not surprising to us to hear Hugh say that because we particularly, as we've worked our way through these passages, recognize that there are numerous times when the Lord has made it very, very clear He said, do this and you'll be a good servant of mine. Do this and you'll be a faithful servant. Uh, Make this a priority. Teach the church these things. So we understand God has priorities. We understand he has the right to say what he wishes to say. We understand that what he prescribes for the church is still relevant for today. And last week we read through this section of Scripture for the first time. I think it was easy for us to begin to identify with Hughes' point because things that God thinks are most important, mark this, don't even make the list if the church is driven by secular thinking. The things that God thinks are most important don't make the list. If you're driven by this success syndrome. And in these 14 verses, we really got a glimpse of the heart of God concerning an important ministry of the church and some important priorities for success from God's perspective. Now, as we read the passage, I think we can see that the Ephesian church had... It was having some trouble discharging this ministry. It's not that the church didn't take on the ministry. It's just that it got disproportionate. And I think Timothy is given some instruction. He's going to have to get it back on track. And we can take some cues as we go through the letter. We can kind of see what some of the problems were with the things that Paul has to say because he's not saying them in a vacuum. But in it all, we can see God's priorities concerning the care for women and in particular for widows, that's women without a husband, And as we took a cross-section of Scripture, which we won't do again today, really to make sure, really in the middle of all this mix-up in Ephesus, that we understood very clearly God's heart and His commands concerning the care and esteem that He expects for those without a protector. And I think that we could have spent a lot more time there, but we certainly understood that last time. And we saw that women and children are precious in the sight of the Lord. In God's design, they are both to be the special object of his care, and they've always had his attention, and they have his provision, particularly those who have lost their fathers and who have lost their husbands. And we went through a lot of passages last week as an introduction, and if you missed any of that, I would encourage you to catch up. You do that on Spotify or on YouTube, but we call very clearly from the Old Testament that God was very concerned about women. He was very concerned about the fatherless and those without someone to defend them. And we saw numerous passages that shows he is their defender, and that's a really sobering and scary thought. And, and that didn't change, we saw, as we moved into the, old, into the New Testament, in James chapter 1, and verse 27, we see James tell the church, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our, our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And so it just translated straight into the church. Uh, right from the Old Testament, God's importance and, what he, and the priority that he put on it. And so we could easily say with all certainty that those people who name the name of God and identify with him should see this as an imperative. It makes the list. And to have the same heart for women and children as he does. And, and that would make the gospel clear, would it not? Because this is precisely what pure and undefiled religion is supposed to do. Because the more we're like this in our care, the more we resemble the Father. And men, as we saw last week, the more and better we love our wives, the more we resemble the son. And, and when we defend the helpless, we have family resemblance to our heavenly father. And so we saw that early, that early church did make this a priority. It wasn't that they forgot the whole thing. To care for widows and for orphans, but obviously they'd lost some discernment concerning how this ministry was be discharged and, and how to go about it, and perhaps letting it become the driver of a good and a good thing becoming a not so good thing. And we saw in Revelation chapter three, the church in Ephesus had, was doing good things, but they had lost what? Their first love, things had got out of order in the church, and things that were not as important became the things that were the major things and so perhaps even putting non-believers on the roll. And and so there was this big mess. And so Paul instructs Timothy to perform an intervention with some tough directives. And so he says to Timothy, and through him to the church, in verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. And we saw that that was principle number three in in relating and leading. Very simply, it's the responsibility of the church to support True widows, And we saw the word widows is the entire focus. Now, we know that there's trouble here, so the first two uh, principles that we saw had to do with how Paul was telling Timothy to relate and to reprove the things that were wrong. And so we know that he's gonna have to wait in here and there's gonna be perhaps people on the list who shouldn't be, and so he's going to have to address that. He's, got to, he's going to have to redress the fact that there are some people who are not on the list who need to be, and perhaps younger women who shouldn't be on and, and people who are administrating, and he's going to have to take on all of this. So he's going to come in with the relational skills he's going to need and bring the reproof that's needed to correct what's going on here. But here we see this principle number three. It's the responsibility of the church to support true widows. And honor, that word honor is the verb tamao, present active imperative. In other words, it's a command again to Timothy to bring it to the church and direct it to carry it out. And so it's a derivative of a word that is a superlative. It's the word most precious. So when you apply it here, it's likely fixing the value accordingly. And we saw this word has to do not with just protection and not just with honor, but in the sense that you respect them, but in provision of material things to bring about their support. And we saw the word widows as the adjective kairos. It's an adjective used as a noun in the Greek. And we understand the word to mean a woman who has lost her husband. And it means that. But when Paul says who are widows indeed, we have to know that this isn't the sum of that Greek word. There are some who would qualify as widows, but not the ones who are widows indeed. And so there's going to be some discernment here and some correction. The word then doesn't speak about how a woman got into the situation It just describes the situation. She's alone. She suffered the loss of her husband. She has gaps. In fact, uh, that word keros has to do with like a canyon or or some kind of uh, gap that you can't cross, something that's missing there. And so the idea is she doesn't have what she needs it doesn't say how she lost the husband usually of course we we would certainly think she lost the husband through death that is the normative meaning of the word for us but in this passage and in the bible that's not the normative meaning it could certainly include that there's nothing here that indicates though that it's limited just to that and in the context of its usage in the first century it could mean a woman who lost her husband in any fashion she could have lost him by death she could have been wrongfully divorced. She could have been deserted or cast off. There's any number of ways that a woman could find herself in a position where she was a widow indeed. In 1 Timothy 5, five, which we're going to look at in depth in just a minute, we saw this last time, it helps really understand this definition. We see now she who is a widow indeed, and then mark this as he really defines it, who has been left alone. Her position is she's forsaken. She's desolate. It doesn't say anything about the husband's death. It just simply describes the state of a woman who's been left alone, because her husband is no longer present. And so she is in serious straits. And during that time, there were no social services to provide anything, and unless they had someone to care for them, they were often reduced to poverty. And then in verse three, look back there, when we read, "Honor widows through a widows indeed," it just means "truly bereft, truly left alone, without resources. Now, not every single woman is in that situation. Not every single woman is really in dire straits. Not every widow will qualify because of the choices or character that we're going to see or the situation. So Paul is going to help Timothy deal with the situation by giving him a measuring rod, a list of qualifications. And, and that seems just obvious, right? Because otherwise... Everyone's going to have their own definition of who qualifies. Everybody's going to have their own definition of who is deserving. Everybody's going to try to figure out what it means to be in need. What's the standard of living I need to to get by? Now look at verse 4. If any widow, as, as Timothy begins to apply this measuring rod through Paul, he says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God so we're going to see this later in verse 9, that there is to be a list. But it just says, if any widow, just the general term for no husband, no no husband to provide for her. And as we said, it's not saying how they don't have a husband. That's not the issue. As we work our way through the guidance, we're going to see that it's going to narrow those qualifications. And we just read it, and you can see a number of those things that have to be true. And here we begin to do that. So if any widow has children or grandchildren, that's direct descendants and a line down from them. Then this instruction, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. So before the widow is to put on the list as a true widow, what needs to be ascertained? Whether or not they have any family. So Timothy's obviously going to have to do that. They have to find out if there's any family, any children, any grandchildren, because it is the responsibility of the children and the grandchildren to support that widow. That's what he's saying. He says, let them, that is the children and grandchildren, learn first to show their godliness in the family. And the word, that word home, oikos, refers to the actual family under the roof. You say you're godly, let's see it in your family. And it says they must first learn, Montano, and, and it's in, in the priority, present, active, imperative. It's a command. First learn to make some return to your parents. That's what it says. If you're really godly, this is what you're going to do. And that was principle number four widow care. The family has the first responsibility. If you say you're godly and you're growing and you're studying the Bible and you're doing Bible studies and you're going to ministry, that's fine. But godliness will be shown first in your relationship to your parents. How you care for your mother. How you care for your father. How you, sisters, how do you care for your brothers? Brothers, how do you care for your sister, moms? How do you care for your children, wives? How do you care for your husbands, fathers? How do you care for your children, fathers? How do you treat your and and care for your wife? Because home is the proving ground for spirituality. Home is the proving ground. It doesn't matter what you're saying you're doing. What you're doing at home shows whether you're godly or not. And then it says this, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And I say this often, everybody wants to know what God's will is for their life. I mean, everybody wants to know, what what does God have for me? And I always say to people, it's really good if you want to know God's will, His unknown will for your life, just begin to obey the ones that you know for sure are His will. And here's one. This is acceptable in the sight of God. Everybody wants to know what God's will is for their life. Here's one. You can know for sure that you're really godly if you do these kinds of things. Not Bible studies, not small group, not personal Bible studies. What you do in the home, in your area of responsibility, is the proving ground for godliness. Because you can be someone, 2 Timothy 3.7, always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, you can study the Bible all day long and it's possible then to always be studying it, going to Bible studies, reading your Bible, but never putting into practice anything that you're studying. And that's not unusual. It's true in a lot of areas. But it's certainly true in our subject today. Taking a close look at the home is going to make the real position clear no matter what Appearance may be proffered at church to church people who don't know what's going on in private. This is very important, beloved. That's where the proving ground is. It's always the proving ground. For those who lead the church in their home, it has to be ordered, children coming up under them. If they're young, wife coming up under him and he loving her like Christ loved the church, same with the deacons. Home's always the proving ground. If it's out of control at home, then you can't lead. If it's out of control at home, don't say you're spiritual because you're not. You're not caring for your family. You're not caring for your children like you should. You're not caring for your husband or your wife. Listen, it doesn't matter how many Bible studies you go to. You can study all day long and never come to the knowledge of the truth. Now look at verse 5 if you would. Now she who is a widow indeed and who's been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Now we looked at that just briefly. We're going to see more of this measuring rod that Paul is giving to Timothy in order to straighten out the problems in the ministry here at Ephesus. So he reiterates in his letter uh, to Timothy. So he says, now she who is a widow indeed who's been left alone. And just, that just means that it is truly by herself. And as we just saw, she doesn't have any children or any grandchildren and has been left alone. And it's perfect passive in the Greek. It just means, and it's the verb mono. This is our English word for one. It happened to her. That's in the passive. So something happened to create this situation and she has been put in in the position of being isolated by herself. It's just her and it isn't going to change and this is her state of being. That's the perfect. She's going to be this way. This is her state and it's not going to change. So Paul just clarifies the target audience for this ministry and these requirements will exclude many No doubt, who are currently on the dole. They'll either not be poverty stricken because they have some resources, or they'll have family who should be taking care of them. Now, look at the next part. She has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. And this is principle number five. She's a widow indeed. Principle number five in relating and leading for widow care, she is a believer. She's a believer. And that's, that's interesting. She's fixed her hope. Again, perfect tense, active voice, indicative mood. El Pidzo. In other words, she waits for salvation with joy and full confidence. This describes her. She fully trusts in God. This is her daily, if you will, disposition. She must be a believer. And it's, not, and it's verified not by her saying she's a believer. It's verified by the continuous, obvious trademarks of her life. Her hope is in the Lord. And although you may not know this at first, once you get to know her, you're going to know the other indicative habits of a believer. She continues, it says, in entreaties and prayers night and day. That's prosmeno, that is to abide in or be in the habit of being in entreaties night and day. So it has to be clear what's going on here, and she has to be a believer. So obviously, Paul's saying this, in the church they probably had widows on the list who weren't believers and were receiving a handout. And that's not surprising, it's still the case today. Today, on a a month-to-month basis, we probably get 10 to 12 inquiries about whether we can pay a light bill or pay a heat bill or pay a water bill or or pay the rent or something for someone. Now, it's not that we don't want to do that, but it's an unknown situation, isn't it? But people will come and sometimes if they come to the door, they get more than they bargained for because I'll ask them a question. I'll say, just out of curiosity, I understand you're in need, but why did you come to the church? I mean, why didn't you go to Fleet or over here to the, you know, the Quick Mart or somebody to sell stuff, and they probably have profits, and you know, say, hey, can you pay my light bill? But you came to the church, and we don't sell anything here. You, you understand that, right? There's no profit margin here where we sell stuff. The only reason why we have something to give is because people who attend here give it sacrificially and don't use up everything that comes into their life, you see, So I asked them, why do you come to the church? Usually it's, well, Christians are usually generous. You're right. It is a trademark of being a believer to take care of people in need. We're going to see that in just a minute. But you've got to discern. You can't be just, okay, whatever. Because what you don't want to do, and and many times we'll help people that we don't know, just depends on the situation, if it's a single mom with kids. But there's got to be some questions. Who's at home? Does anybody have a job? I mean, of the people living in your house, does anyone work? Because we know that you're supposed to work. We looked at that last time, didn't we? And so there's got to be some questions because what we don't want to do as a church is provide a medium of buffer between this individual and the consequences of their sinfulness, you see? If the Lord's got them in chastening, and bringing them somewhere, what we don't want to do is say, okay, well, we'll make, the, we'll make up the difference for you, but we don't know what the situation is. If they're living in open sinfulness, the consequences of that uh, are pretty drastic over time. You make a lot of bad decisions and you disobey the Lord, you're gonna find at the end that that isn't that, that great. It takes you longer, keeps you longer, takes you farther and costs more, right? And so that's the case. So obviously she's gotta be a believer and it's not verified by what she says, it's verified by the continuous, obvious trademark of her life and she continues in entreaties and prayers night and day and that's the habit that she has and, and there's a good example of that and this is out of Daniel and when we went through Daniel, This is one of my favorite passages in Daniel. It's one that I think about often myself and what I encourage other people to do. So Daniel is now deep in the kingdom and is not under the same rulership as he was when he came in. Babylon is gone. And so he is not in the main mix, but he knows what's going on. There's other leadership have risen uh, and are in power. And in the process of that, of course, uh, a demeaning, an anti-Semitism has arisen in the kingdom. It's not surprising. It's always been. And they're against Jews, and they know Daniel prays all the time. So they go to the king, and they say, King, we think it's good that everybody just prays to you. And, of course, uh, Middle Eastern kings uh, think that's good, too. And so he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Nobody prays except to me. And so um, he makes the law. Daniel, although he's not in the mix, he understands the law has been made. And so we pick up in the narrative, and Daniel, when he knew the document was signed, He understood what it was all about. You can't pray to anybody but the king. Uh, He entered his house now in his roof chamber. He had windows open towards Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before God. Mark this as he had been doing previously. See, there was no panic in Daniel's life. All of a sudden, when things go south and sideways, uh, all of a sudden Daniel's like, Oh no, what am I going to do? What did Daniel do? What he'd always been doing. It was his postmenno. He was in the habit of kneeling and praying to God and that wasn't going to change just because somebody made a law that said he shouldn't do it. And that's a great way to live your life. And you wonder about your first responses. And this is how I evaluate my own self. A lot of times some ad- adversarial thing comes along. Something happens I'm not really happy with. What's my first response See, whether I say it or not, what did I think? Was my first response was to be as is my habit, just take it before the Lord because I've been taking everything else before the Lord? Or was it to worry and fret and wonder and what's going to happen, all that, see? And I think this is a great reminder that one of the trademarks of really trusting the Lord is that that's the first person you bring everything to because you always have been doing that, See? And difficult things were on the way for Daniel. He was going to go into the lion's den and he was going to be 70 plus years old. There was no skipping around dodging the lions, okay? He was going to have to have the Lord come in and intervene, which is precisely what the Lord did. And this is the same idea. You know, he wasn't wringing his hands. He did what he always was in the habit of doing. And here, this woman who is desolate and alone is a believer. Her hope is in God, and she has a heart, he's the heart of a woman, and and she and in her condition, and she trusts in him, see. And it's been her habit of trusting in him. She makes requests of him, she talks to him all the time. It gives a whole new illustration, again, to a place where, if you want to know what the Lord's will is for your life, here's one: rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you wonder what God's will is for your life, there's another place where you can plug that in. Always rejoice, regardless of the situation. Because that takes in everything. Pray without ceasing. In a habit of continual prayer all through the day. Not for two minutes at night, right before you pass in into sleep, right? Not for a, Greek, a brief prayer when you're in trouble and you're, you know, God's your grandpa, He's gonna bail you out, reach down and grab you. No, constantly praying. In a conversation with the Lord all day long. And in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's it. See, that's, that's describing someone who is in constant interaction. That's prosmino. To abide in and in the habit of entreaties and prayers night and day. Our trust really is in the God of Hebrews 13.5. We see this. And, and again, this just takes it, as we've always said, whatever, whatever principles we pull out of here. One standard of godliness, right? One standard of holiness. It's not two different standards. Those who lead the church have a standard they have to live up to. That's so it can be an example to everyone else. It's the same here. So here it says she continues, she's abide in and in the habit of trusting the Lord here uh, the writer of Hebrews is giving it to every believer here's what he says make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have for he himself has said I will never depart from you desert you or forsake you and so that we confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid what will man do to me See, it's bigger than just the widows, isn't it? It's, we have to recognize, and we're going to see this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that everything that we have comes from the Lord, and we wouldn't have anything unless he gave it to us. So a continuous understanding is that the Lord provides for all my needs. And that's the danger when, when you're unredeemed and wealthy, right? We've talked about this before. The unredeemed wealthy man thinks he's okay. Why? Because his portfolio is fat enough that he thinks he's going to be, he's going to be insulated from difficult times. But the Lord provides everything and he can take it all away in an instant. See, he's not insulated. He just thinks that he is. And even believers who are very wealthy and not walking with the Lord think they're probably insulated and the Lord must be blessing them. And that's a misnomer. Here we have to recognize... Everything comes from the Lord, and it's our responsibility to realize he's never going to desert you or forsake you. He said that, and the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's our confident assurance, just like this widow shows that she's, a re- she's redeemed because she interacts that way with the Lord. Her settled condition is alone and without means. But her settled attitude is one of full and complete hope and trust in God, which is the exact attitude we're supposed to bring every day to our relationship with Him. And so the church has responsibility to believing widows who are widows indeed, and we see what that looks like. And we may choose to help non-believing women who are in these conditions that we said just a minute ago, but that's not a responsibility. I I think that's expressed well in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And then what? Mark it. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. Your number one concern is always the household of faith. Churches where the saints meet. We didn't design it to attract unredeemed into the house. They don't want to come if we do what we're supposed to do. But that means that we have responsibility to help those who are the redeemed. It's always that way. But as we have opportunity, if the Lord's provided something that you can help someone who isn't redeemed and it makes the Lord look good, you certainly have the opportunity to do that. But that's not the focus here. And then verse six. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now at first look it looks like it's a reiteration perhaps maybe an illustration but I think it's wise to use it as a principle here's why in relating and leading for widow care she must be godly she must be godly and that seems to be the clear indication of course of verse five but from the other side the life has to line up with what she says because there's a lot of this going on today People who would call themselves believers or redeemed who would indicate that they pray and, and, you know, on social media they may say, I thank God for my answered prayer or whatever. But the life has to add up, you see. It can't just be what you say. Because whatever you bring to the church, as we said before, that's pretty much how they're going to look at you. However you portray yourself, they're going to come away with probably that idea about you. But that is not necessarily how you really are. Her life has to add up. And it uses this, it uses this description of her, uh, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure. Spot lao. it's an interesting word. It is the word voluptuous, that's the word. And that's not a word that we use anymore. That's a 1940s word, right? That's a, that's a, a whatever, painted on the front of a B-17 uh, bomber. Or, you know, if you watch Robert, uh, uh, the rabbit, whatever that is, you know, it doesn't mean that much to us today, but it's an important word. And and the idea is that she says she's a believer, but she lives uh, however she wants. Perhaps in the past, she spent her money on pleasure. She spent her money on sinfulness. The question is, and these are the questions you have to ask. What is the established pattern of life? Did she have a lot? And now she has nothing, and now she has a lot of credit card bills. she's kind of lived her life how she wanted, did what she wanted, because what you don't want to do is put her on the list and have her take her sole support from the church and then spend it however she wants to do to spend it. How has the character been molded into Christ's likeness? Now, again, one standard of godliness. And in James, he's going to bring this to the church. And we're going to see the same word used. And it's given us, I think, a great understanding of why the life and the questions have to, have to be asked. She must be godly. James chapter 5 verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. So he's talking to the church. It's important. This is Jerusalem church. This is written so people can read it. We're not talking, about the, we're not talking to the world here. He's talking about people who portray themselves a certain way. Verse 2, your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten, so they have become bereft. They used to have a lot, but now they don't have much. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. In other words, you had a lot, you gobbled it all up, and because everything that we have comes from the Lord, then it becomes a witness against you. The Lord gave you a lot of resources, you didn't use them wisely, and now it's your witness against you. It is in the last days you've stored up your treasure. In other words, they lived for themselves, spent money on whatever they wanted, but they didn't realize that Jesus was so close to coming back. They didn't live in light of the fact that he was going to return. They didn't love the Lord's return in the way that they used what they had. Behold, he says, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. In other words, they cheated people and they used the money on themselves and they didn't pay their bills and and just lived in luxury and did what they wanted even though they had responsibilities to use the money for something else. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and then here's our word in context and lived a life of wanton pleasure. you fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Here it is. Same outcome, see? These, by appearances, look like a believer, maybe talk like a believer. They come to church, they have a certain way that they conduct themselves, so it looks like they're spiritual. Church people think they are what pretty much they portray themselves to be, but they lived like they wanted to live. In the past, they did whatever they wanted. They had plenty of resources, the Lord provided all that for them, but they lived in, there it is, wanton pleasure. And this just gives some illustrations. So again, expands out that holiness, one one level of godliness, one level of holiness. This is to all the church. Listen, everybody can live this way. You're not to live this way. That's what it says. So Timothy is cautioned to look both ways. Not only what she says and what it appears that she's doing, but also what happened before and how has she lived up till now. We're going to see more of that as we get through the passage. Look, verses 7 and 8, if you would. Prescribe these things as well, he says, so that they may be above reproach. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that's interesting. Again, we've seen that word prescribe, para angelo. Again, that's the word for command. So Timothy has been given commands and he is to what? Pass them on. It's not optional. It's not you come to the church, hey, if it's convenient and if you want to do it and, you know, it works well inside your budget or whatever, just kind of do this if you'd like. It's good. No, that's not it, see, These are commands and they're not to be ignored. And Jesus has the right to say what's supposed to go on in his own church. And he's the head of all the church. So he gets to say that. And these are the guidelines Jesus has set up for his bride to function properly in this ministry. And he tells Timothy to command it so the church may be, this is an interesting word, above reproach. It's the same word we had for 1 Timothy 3.2. Do you remember? An overseer, someone who wants to lead the church, then must be, mark it, our word, above reproach. And then it says the husband of one wife, Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and etc. It's the compound adjective. It means not able to be called out. Literally, no handle. Everybody's supposed to live that way. That's not surprising, is it? The Lord wants His bride to live in such a way that they are above reproach? That the Lord wants His bride to be unable to be called out? Does he want us to live in the community, in our workforce, or wherever we are, uh, in our small, in our, in our business, or whatever we do? Does he want us to live in such a way that the, that the Lord's gospel is compromised, and they can say, I mean, you say you're a believer, but these are things are, that are in your life. They shouldn't be in your life. These are very, very clear, see. And so, prescribe them, and make sure you do that, so that the church will be, not just us individually, and then the church collectively, is beyond reproach, above it. You have to be particular in this ministry. And in particular, as we look at the context here, everything we looked at so far, so the church maintains a good testimony. Now look at verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, this is interesting that Paul uh, what Paul's doing here in the letter. In verse 4, if you remember, he said, if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and make some return to their parents. And mark this part again, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. That's the positive side. That's the positive side. That's, that's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. It means to take care of them. It means to honor them. It means to respect them. Whatever they need, see. And this is what this has to do with. So when we then... Again, what does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? Now, how does that apply? Here we are. When we sons and daughters do this, we are only repaying our parents and grandparents. We will be living out the fifth commandment. We'll be putting our religion, our godliness, literally into practice. We will not have God's approval, in other words, without such loving family care. That's what God thinks is right, and he's pleased with this in our obedience. Then the negative side, then, of ignoring the family, approving ground. So you can be pleasing to God in doing it, learning this first and beginning to do it. If you didn't know it before, now you know that's one of your responsibilities. Then the other side, if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse, he says, than an unbeliever. And we, we briefly touched on this last week. He says, if you don't provide for your own, that is, The widows that are in your network, these are are women who are alone, true widows, you know of. That's what he means by provide for his own. People who he's aware of, people who are in his sphere, likely in the church, who meet these standards. These are the ones he's going to see that he knows about. So there's a personal responsibility, not just a corporate responsibility, to be aware of what the needs are around you. And if you don't provide for those that qualify uh, in their own family... So we know the first phrase is beyond family, see, uh, the family of the church, because he specializes and says, especially of your own family. So those are his own, and then especially of his own family. So there's really a bigger group taking in that first one, and then of his own family. He says, if you don't help the ones you're aware of, and especially in your own family, your own parents, grandparents, uh, your own aunt, your own sister, whatever it is, someone who's close to you who is in need of it, if you don't help those along with everyone networked to you in any sense who belongs to you as a friend or acquaintance, there are two things gonna go, that are going on here. Here's the first one. Very, very broad. Anybody who's an acquaintance of your, certainly inside the church, and then your own family. First one is, he has denied the faith. Now, that doesn't mean you personally have lost your salvation because that's not possible. And we don't have passages here that would contradict our clear, the clear meanings that we understand everywhere else. The Lord saves forever those who place his trust, their trust in him. So he's not judging your soul here. What he means is that you've obscured the evidence that you're a true believer. That's what he means. He's denied the faith. Now, as you think about the context of what we're talking about here, and you're thinking about supplying the needs, which one do you think which one of those evidences is most apparent as most foremost? Well, let's look at a few illustrations and we'll get the feel of it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And that's a rhetorical question because it what? It doesn't. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed deed and in truth. There's always the obligation out of love if you have the world's goods, in other words, this money financial system we live under and you know there's somebody in need and you have an ability to meet the need and you don't do it, what have you done? You've obscured one of the very evidences that you're born again. We're not supposed to love with word or tongue. Hey, go and be filled. Love you. You know, but you don't help, right? Instead, inside the church, if you know there's a need and you can provide it and you don't do it, then how does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't. So love indeed in truth. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7. It's not alone. There's a number of passages here. Beloved, it says, let us love one another for love is of God, from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God but the one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, love of, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love not that we love God but that he loved us And sent his son to be the propitiation, the substitution for our sin, beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here's the thing. Love is of God and everyone who does not love does not know God. Again, we've received an immeasurable gift of sacrifice. It showed us what true provision is. And in that example, we have an opportunity to show love to other people. You see, that's the context. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciple. If you act like a Christian at church and you teach a small group and you go to church all the time and you're really active in the choir. No, none of those or anything else you'll substitute in. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Inside the church, love is expressed in deed, as we just saw just a minute ago. Love is expressed in meeting needs. By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Easy to say, hard to do. And for children, as we saw in verse five, supposed to provide back some recompense for their parents. As a child, it's easy to take it, it's hard to pay it back. Because you don't know as a child what it cost and how much sacrifice, right? And and, and it's fine, you shouldn't. And parents provided for you, that made a way for you. It's easy to take that and not pay it back. That's precisely why he said, let them first show piety at home. If you want to make sure you're really godly, you're going to understand this first. And there are just so many verses here. We could stay here the whole time. But, beloved, if Jesus watches the giving of a widow, giving two copper coins, all that she has, and he comments on it, And he says, she truly showed what sacrificial giving looked like and that her true hope was in the Lord. He was her provider and he committed it. Let me ask you something. Do you still still think he's watching what people give? If he was just interested, if he was only interested in just a widow, how much more is he interested in what else goes on? See. Love always gives. God always pays back. Psalm chapter 37 verse 25. I have been young and now I'm old, the psalmist says, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends. That's the righteous. All day long he is gracious and lends. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because you don't have anything that you weren't given. It's all a stewardship, the whole thing. And his descendants are a blessing. When you make a habit of your life of being generous, your children learn that too. And there'll be a blessing on down long after you're gone. Proverbs 19, 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deeds. Do you think the Lord ever not pays back? He always pays back, doesn't he? He always pays back. You know, I've told you before in, in, my, in my Bible, Proverbs, I have everything that has to do with money highlighted in green. And everything that has to do with child, child rearing highlighted in yellow. And there's a lot of green and yellow in, my Prover- in the book of Proverbs. So I'm reading through, I'll know if it's yellow. Hey, this has to do with children. My children are grown. I'm not in the middle of it like you guys are. But these are important principles. Here's one for money. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. He'll repay him for his good deeds. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. I love this. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You've been shown what sacrificial love looks like in Christ's substitution. You understand the love that was given and that it's in deed and not in word. And so when you don't take care of those in your circle, is the first thing that's going on. When you don't care, take care of those in your biological family, number one, you deny the evidence of the faith that you claim has changed you. You deny the evidence of the faith that you claim, say, you claim has changed you. And it doesn't matter what else you're doing, Okay. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you attend. It doesn't matter how many classes you teach. Christian life at its basic unit is an act of love towards someone in need. Christian life at its basic unit. James says the ministry to widows and orphans is basic to the faith. It's just everywhere in the scripture. The basic unit. Of Christianity is an act of love towards someone in need. It's being a sacrificial type of giver who takes care of those who need to be taken care of. And and here's the second thing that's going on. First thing is, you know, you just make, you just obscure your claim on Christ who's changed you. And here's the second thing. You're worse than, he says, an unbeliever. Why? Well, because most unbelievers take care of their own. Most unbelievers almost always get this right. And so you don't want to act worse than someone who has made no profession of faith. It's just so shocking. Because most unbelievers have no real model to follow since they don't know Christ. They don't understand the substitution that occurred that saved them from a debt they couldn't repay. And as we just saw, unbelievers don't have the power to love like we do, like you've been given by the Holy Spirit. But many pagans revere their ancestors and they worship their elders And and so number two, the second thing that's going on here, as you can see, uh, the believer who falls below that basic standard of loving provision is really shocking because most unbelievers get this right. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Most unbelievers get this right. You don't want to mess this up and be worse than someone who's never heard the truth. And, And if unbelievers don't get it exactly right, the believer is much more guilty, right, than they are because of what they know and the command they've received, and the love they possess. So let's close out. Let's apply this, just in general. These instructions for the first century church in Ephesus to the church all the way into the 21st century, we find some principles very, that are very clear and very demanding. Christian sons and daughters are responsible for the care of widows, and as the text expands it, of their needy parents, and their grandparents, they have to make some return, they have to honor them, not only with attitude and demeanor, but as we saw, honor has to do with financial help if they're in need. And today, despite the cultural nets of social security and retirement benefits and interest and and benefits and whatever, Christian children are to care for their parents. And if financial provision is unneeded, there is still a Christian obligation for hands-on loving care The family is the proving ground for spirituality and neglect and abandonment and riding off is not an option because such conduct as we see is worse than an unbeliever and it makes it very hard to see the child in light of the gospel as showing evidence of the faith that they claim. And as we said last time, it doesn't matter what happened to you. And I, I understand with you. I empathize. Some of you were not raised in ideal situations. Some of your parents did what they shouldn't have done. It doesn't take you out of the obligation to go back and take care of them. It doesn't take you out of the obligation to honor them. You still have to do it. Because if you don't do it, you're worse than an unbeliever. Because at least they know they're supposed to do it. Do you understand? There's no, there's no write-off here. You can't just say, okay, because this happened, that's it, I'm out. You don't get that option. There's no option here. conduct of Christians in these areas should help unbelievers see that God's household is the church of the living God the pillar and foundation of the truth and God allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust doesn't he and if somebody abuses you you're supposed to pray for them and they spitefully use you you're supposed to bless them do you think that that applies to your family too beloved yes it does So you have to figure out some way to model Christ. You look like a family relationship when you answer back with kindness when all you received was whatever, abuse. Hardship. And after the Christian family takes care of its own, the church has to take care of the real widows, those without family who have no means And put their hope in God and their godly. And we're going to see more principles as we go along here. As you can kind of see how it's going to go. One standard of godliness is always more application. As we look at other passages of scripture. So we'll pick up here in our study next time we're together. And I would just say to you. The same advice given to Charles Schwab is perfect for us. Number them in order of importance. I think you got it. Tomorrow morning start with number one. And stay with it until you've completed it. And then go on to number two and number three and number four, et cetera. And the scriptures have made clear what is most important and what rests on your obedience or disobedience. All right? Let's pray. That's enough for today and we're out of time. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for the fellowship of the saints and the joy it is to be together. We thank you for earlier as we prayed and humbled ourselves before you as Jacob led us. Lord, as a time where we recognize we have nothing apart from you and everything we need in Christ. What a joy it is to know that. Help us to rejoice always. Help us to pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. Show we're really reliant on you and that we recognize that everything's from your hand, even hard things, which you'll never waste. You'll never waste a hardship. You'll never waste a hard thing we've had to go through. You want to use that to conform us to the image of your son and our responses then are what's being measured. Conform us to your image, Father, in these areas. There's so much here and I know you're applying it very liberally all over the place in ways I don't, I don't know or understand and I don't need to because you're God and you're in charge of them and you can make that application. I know what you've done in my own heart. So, Father, be at work through your word. We give you full reign here. Uh, tear down our false pretenses and and thoughts that are incorrect and don't line up with what your word says and instead help us to replace them with the things that you've said, which is true sanctification. That's truly becoming more like Christ. It's consistent obedience in doing what the word says to do, the application part for us. So help us to be those kinds of believers. Father, we want to thank you for the week that's ahead. Uh, for even though in the middle of work and whatever we have to do, there's going to be a time where we can gather around a table and we can be thankful. Uh, Bringing our thoughts around our true thankfulness for what you've done, for the unpayable debt you've paid, for the rich blessings that are around us. Even in the middle of hardship, perhaps, still so sweet what you've done, knowing that we have a sure hope. And even in the middle of hard times and hard things, we have a sure hope of, of a, an inheritance that doesn't fade away, reserved in heaven for us. And as we labor here, help us to be the slave found doing what the master has said to do. We pray all this in the name of your son for his sake, and all God's people said, Amen.